All right, this morning, take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to return to our study in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we are going to return also to the verses that we read last time and started out looking at and see uh, if we can get a little farther in these verses. So starting at verse 13 through verse 21 is what we're going to focus on today, 13 through 21. But let me remind you so far where we are in First Peter chapter 1. Um, Peter has in his introduction and greeting in this first chapter, has reminded us of the greatness of our salvation that we have from God in Jesus Christ. And in describing that salvation, he's told us that we are chosen according to God's foreknowledge. We're chosen by God, and because we're chosen by God, and according to his foreknowledge, he's also secured us in himself and through his power. So it's not about us having to keep our salvation. God has secured that for us. And because it's secured in Christ Jesus, then we have reserved for us also an inheritance that Peter describes as incorruptible, that will not pass away. It's an eternal inheritance, and that's what we look forward to. That's the lively hope that Peter describes here that we have to look forward to. And With that, it's not just the future that God has planned, but it's also the present. And so even though we go through tribulations and trials, we know that God has a good purpose in it, and so we can rejoice in God's working in our lives. And knowing all of this, we have an underlying joy that unbelievers cannot understand, and that joy remains no matter what our physical circumstances may be. And so all of that, is encompassed in this great salvation that Peter describes here. You know, I was thinking about Earl this week and Jerry and others that have passed on. They are now experiencing that eternal and incorruptible inheritance while we still wait. And so in a sense, I'm a little bit jealous, but I know the Lord has said, you know, our, our time is still to be on this earth, and that's in his hands. And while we're here, we need to be faithful and continue to rejoice even in the trials because our turn's coming. That's not a threat or a warning. That's something to look forward to, that our turn's coming. And so Peter mentions that here. But he says with that great responsibility comes I'm sorry, with that great privilege comes great responsibility. And that's the verses 13 through 16 that we spent some weeks on, the call of God for us to be holy like he is holy. And remember, our holiness or living in that holiness as God has called us to is our response of thanksgiving and praise to the God who saved us. That is just our natural reaction or the natural response of a heart out of gratitude is that we would obey him and be what he wants us to be. And we saw that holiness is not defined by your conduct, but by the character of your heart. And in the Old Testament, we remember, uh, I explained this, that the Jews saw this word holy and they understood it to mean set apart. So when God says be holy, it means be set apart. We're set apart from the world that he's called us out of. We're set apart to the God who we are to become like. And the holiness then is for God, or is our purpose then is to be set apart unto what God has called us to be and serving him with our entire lives. So while the holiness that God's called us to is defined by the new nature, our new heart that we've received in Christ Jesus. It is displayed, as Peter says in verse 15, in our conduct. And it's not just some areas of our conduct, it's in all areas of our conduct. That's where our holiness is demonstrated. And therefore, that set-apartness is demonstrated in how we live and what we live for. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 basically reminds us, everything we do, should be for the glory of God. We sang that this morning. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. And so that should be the message of our lives and what we do and how we do it. So as we get to verse 17 then, Peter outlines several things that should motivate us to that holy living. 
And we started looking at that last time, but we're going to continue on this morning. So let's jump back to verse 13 and look at the command of holiness, and then we'll re- renew our uh, exploration into the motivations to that holiness. So starting at verse 13 down through verse 21, Peter says here, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Let's pause for a minute and have prayer, and then we'll continue on with our message this morning. Father, I thank you for your word and for the truth that you have given in it. Lord, we know that it's not part truth, but all of it is truth, as your, your son has told us. And so, Lord, as we look at this portion today of your word, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, and our eyes to see those things as we are reminded of the sacrifice of Christ and what it means for us in our daily living. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do his work in helping us to understand that he would motivate us to serve you and to give you the glory that you deserve as we live the way that you want us to. And so, Father, we give ourselves to you during this time. I surrender myself to you to be used as your tool now. Fill me with your spirit. I can't do this myself. We want to hear from you, so give me the words to say that your truth might be proclaimed and we might be challenged by you today. And we'll give you the thanksgiving and praise for all that you're going to accomplish. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So I've given you a review of the first chapter, or the first part of the first chapter of First Peter. And again, it all focuses on this salvation we have should uh, elicit our response to live in holiness. And in verse 17, we started looking at the motivations to holy living. And the last time we were in 1 Peter 1, we saw that the first thing, there's four principles in verse 17, or four things that should motivate us. The first one is because we call God our Father. He is our Father. If we are believers, we are His children. And because he is our father, because he has made us his children, then we should want to become like him in holiness. And he mentions that in verse 17. Then he says, not only is he our father, but he is also our judge. We will all stand before the Lord God at the end of time, and we will be judged according to our works. The Bible makes that very clear. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, Paul explains that. Not that we're going to receive punishment for our works or for whether they were good or bad, but that as believers we have eternal life secured, but that all those things that we have done for the glory of God in the context of holiness then will be rewarded. Everything else will be burned up. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire." And so we still have that judgment to go through where God evaluates whether what we did as believers fits the character of holiness and was for his glory. 
And so that God's judgment of our work should motivate us then to live in holiness as he's called us to, because that's the only standard that God's going to accept. So that's the second motivation in verse 17. The third one we saw is because we are citizens of heaven, not of this earth. Even though we sojourn here is the word he uses, we are temporary visitors. We are just going through this land. He says we are basically ambassadors living out the message of who God is and what he can do for people and what he brings in Christ. And therefore, our focus should not be here, but it should be on what is to come. Another motivation to become more like Christ in holiness, because that's our ultimate destination. And then fourthly, in verse 17, we are to live in fear, not a fear of judgment for or punishment of wrongdoing, but a fear of failing that one who has given us everything in Jesus Christ. If we truly love God, we would want to do everything to please him and to honor his name. And so a fear of failure, of being obedient to him, of a a failure of fulfilling the purpose that God has called us to as his children, is a fourth motivation that Peter mentions in verse 17. And then he basically comes to the conclusion in verse 17. He says, well, if that's not enough to motivate you, then this one thing going on in verse 18 through 21 should be above all else the biggest motivation that we have. And in verse 18, he then says, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. The cost to God to secure our redemption in Jesus Christ, when we look at what it costs God, that should be the biggest motivating factor out of everything. Because God valued us so highly to give the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of our, our, our redemption, we should see not only what it costs God, but it should show us how highly God values each one of our souls. Peter helps motivate us with that motivation, and in doing so, he reminds us of three things here about our redemption. Number one, what we are redeemed with, Number two, what we have been redeemed from. And number three, what we have been redeemed to. We're going to start with what we have been redeemed with. And this is in verse 18. In describing what it took to purchase our salvation and to secure us out of the stronghold of sin, Peter begins by saying that um, our redemption could not have been purchased with things of this earth, or with anything of earthly value. Look how he starts verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection, and if you're not familiar with that, I suggest you go and look, read through and study 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul does a great job of explaining every part of the resurrection, those passages. But the main point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the salvation we have is not a corruptible thing. The life that we've been given in Christ is not something that is corruptible. And because the body we have right now is corruptible, we're not taking this body to heaven where everything is incorruptible. We have to be given a new body. That's what the resurrection is all about. So in that same light, Peter here explains this idea that the value that God places on our souls and the incorruptible inheritance that we will receive in eternal life cannot be bought with corruptible things. And so he says, here's corruptible things. Here's what the earthly value system uses as currency, but because that's corruptible, God can't use that to purchase our souls. And that starts with silver and gold. Now, we see silver and gold as 
the most sought-after treasures on earth, especially in the time of Peter, those were the symbols of wealth. They were used as currency. They were status symbol. They were symbols of beauty. And so silver and gold were the most highly valued substances on earth. They still are. But Peter says silver and gold, or earthly treasures, can't even enter into this conversation about redeeming a soul from hell. If you go back in Acts chapter 3, there's an event which happens to Peter. This is right after Pentecost, and Peter is going into the temple, and there's a lame beggar who's sitting at the temple gate, and he reaches up and he asks Peter for alms or for money so that he can buy bread or whatever to survive another day. And Peter answers this as he looks down at the lame man. He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter understood even at that point that earthly money could not purchase the spiritual necessity that we have as people. Here's a lame man who was asking for money to survive another day, and Peter said, let me give you something that's not going to be corruptible. The bread you buy is going to go away. The money you use is going to be uh, it's going to rust. It's going to be burned up someday. That's not going to help you. But what I have is the power of God. And not only does he give him healing so that the lame man rises up and walks, but the man also receives redemption because it says after that he was healed, he jumped around and praised God and gave God glory. Now, that's the purpose that God saves us for, is to be redeemed so that we can give him glory. We sang about that this morning. We read about that in our, in our responsive reading. But Peter understood silver and gold are really not valued in God's kingdom. And so if we are going to try to find something that's valued within the, the economy of God, as far as bringing souls into his kingdom, silver and gold won't cut it. When you go to Revelation chapter 18, remember we studied through Revelation, it talks about in that chapter about the destruction of Babylon and specifically the economic system of Babylon during the tribulation period. And in the verses 12 through 15 in Revelation 18, the Bible tells us the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thylene wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men and the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee. Those are the things that men lust after. And it starts with silver and gold and all the riches of the world. And at the end of time, when God destroys the economy of the world, one of the things he's going to remove is silver and gold, the things that we treasure on this earth. Right after the destruction of, of Babylon, not long after that, comes the return of Christ, his second coming, as he returns to the earth to destroy his enemies and set up his kingdom. And guess what Christ does not need in his kingdom? Silver and gold. It is of no use to him because it's an earthly treasure, not a spiritual incorruptible treasure. And at the end of the millennial kingdom even, what's going to happen? God will destroy this earth and all the elements in it, including all the silver and gold. In fact, Peter tells us in 2 Peter that the earth will melt and all the elements will melt with a fervent heat. And that includes all the treasures that we value on this earth. And as we go to heaven, there will be gold, but the Bible tells us in that new heaven and new earth that we're going to spend eternity in, The gold is going to be basically dirt, and we're going to walk on it on the streets of gold. So it's not highly valued. And so Peter is making this point that the things that we value on earth in our earthly bodies and apart from the riches we have in Christ Jesus 
are going to be completely useless in the kingdom of God, and they hold absolutely no value in God's economy. And so with that in mind, I want to go back for a minute to a point that we saw in verse 17. Remember, one of the motivations that Peter gives us to holiness is that God will be our judge, and all of our works will be judged at that um, judgment seat of Christ, where we receive rewards or have rewards taken. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let me read through verses 7 through 20, and I'm going to do some real quick commentary on this, because I want to make a point here, based on what we read here in 1 Peter, about the lack of silver and gold in God's economy, and the lack of worth that it holds as far as God is concerned. So 1 Corinthians 3, this is the judgment of our works, and Peter or, or Paul starts that conversation by using an analogy that is agricultural. Okay, And the previous passage to this, or the previous verses, there's this argument that, that Paul's addressing. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. And he says, basically, stop focusing on one man. Stop focusing on the work of one man. The ultimate goal is Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse 7, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. There's the rewards. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So he starts with an agricultural analogy of planting a field, and we just water, and we can't make it grow. That's God's work. And then he shifts gears and he says, we're going to use an architectural analogy. We are his building. And in that light, then he says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's the preliminary foundation that has to be set down. It has to be Jesus at the foundation of everything that we do in our lives. Now, he's talking in the context of ministry. So, but that can include us, not just pastors, not just missionaries and evangelists. That includes all believers. We all have a ministry to each other. But he says, what is the foundation of that ministry? If you start with something other than Jesus Christ, that being the foundation and the purpose for what you're doing and the motivation, then it's not God's work. But then we take that foundation, he says, we're going to build upon that. And so he goes on, he says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, though only through fire. So he says, again, the true foundation starts with Jesus Christ, but then he gives examples of what Christians use to build upon that foundation. And most of you are probably familiar with that list, right? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Now, for my whole life, and I'm not saying this is a wrong teaching, people have used this analogy and say, well, there are certain things that are of value to God, and those would be considered gold, silver, and precious stones. And in an earthly perspective, those, when tried by fire, come forth as pure, uh, purified and remain. Obviously, in earthly fire, wood, hay, and stubble would burn up, but gold, silver, and precious stones will survive. But let's put this in context of what Peter's saying here in 1 Peter 1. If that fire of judgment is the end of the world when God destroys all earthly elements, including gold, silver, and precious stones, then what remains out of the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble? Nothing! And I think maybe that's a point Paul was making that we've missed. If we think about ministry in the terms of gold, silver, precious stones, it's very easy to get into the earthly mindset that my ministry then has to accomplish big buildings, 
Lots of money. Lots of people. Opulent, beautiful property and presentation. Because those are the things that are beautiful in earthly perspective. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, you have to start with the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's a spiritual foundation, not an earthly foundation. So I wonder when Paul said gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, if he was saying all earthly elements that we use to build our ministry on are going to be destroyed. When we get to the end of time and we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, what's going to be left? We're not going to be able to point to a bank account or an offering plate of the church or a building. The only thing that will go with us into the kingdom of God in heaven are souls. And so if we build our ministry around numbers, around buildings, around offerings, around earthly success, that will all be burned up. Because in God's economy, gold and silver and all the things that we see of value from this earth are not of value in God's kingdom at all. And so in putting that all in context of what we read here in 1 Peter 1, maybe we shouldn't be striving to build gold and silver and precious stones after all. Maybe we should be striving for human souls to bring them to God, and that is it, because that's the only thing that will last after that judgment seat of Christ. Maybe the only works that will remain and that will survive that final judgment are those things that are related to God's kingdom. And that gives us a little more understanding if we look at it from that perspective of what Peter is talking about here when he says that we are to be holy as God is holy. What things do we treasure in this earth? Peter says in verse 18 in 1 Peter 1, going back there, we are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. And therefore, those things should not be motivational factors to us in our ministry or in our lives. And really, the silver and gold do not play a part at all in our holiness except what we do with them while we're on earth. Are we investing into God's kingdom to bring souls into the kingdom, or are we investing them into things that will make us look good and show that we're a success? Peter says, in redeeming us, God is purchasing us purchasing us out of death into eternal life. That is a totally spiritual thing. There's nothing earthly about that at all. And therefore, God cannot use and does not use earthly treasures to do that. In verses 3 and 4 in this chapter, he's already told us that God has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible. That has nothing to do with retirement accounts. It has everything to do with God's kingdom. And so Peter's making the point here that in the context of redemption and the eternal life that God has given us in Jesus Christ, what we value on this earth has absolutely no value in God's kingdom or God's economy. The point I want you to see is that God does not put precious put value on precious metals on earthly materials, on money, as we do. Peter stresses that right here. Your redemption is the most important thing in your life. It is the most valuable thing that God could give you. And to give you the most valuable gift that God could give you, he does not use something that is not of value in his kingdom. He has to use something else. Gold and silver can't redeem a soul from sin and hell. And therefore, it doesn't matter how much gold and silver you donate to good causes or how much gold and silver you put into the offering plates or how much gold and silver you send to missionaries as part of your ministry duties. 
God will never see that as you're fulfilling your responsibility to him to walk in holiness in all manner of conversation. I'm not saying those things are bad. We should be supporting ministers of the gospel. We should be supporting ministries of the gospel. But just sending money or giving money does not fulfill our responsibility to walk in holiness. You cannot buy your way into heaven because all earthly riches are worthless in God's kingdom. I've been reading through the Psalms deliberately, very slowly, sometimes spending a couple of days or a week even on one Psalm just to to soak it in and and grasp really the, the further meaning or the deeper meanings of some of the Psalms. And I came across Psalm 49 in verses 6 through 9. And again, I'm not surprised, but it struck me. It's amazing. God brings these kinds of things into my personal devotions that fit completely with what we're studying together in Scripture. And, you know, I didn't plan this. But Psalm 49, verses 6 through 9 says, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for his own life. For the redemption of their souls is precious, and it ceases forever. Or in other words, it can never suffice. It can never be enough that he should still live forever and not see corruption. The psalmist understood this. You cannot buy your way into heaven. Earthly riches will not do you any good in God's economy. And so we don't measure our Christianity by how much money we put in the offering or by how faithful we are in supporting ministries or by how much money we make and are able to give to others, even by how many good works we're able to do because of what God's given us. That's not something that God is going to measure. What he's going to measure is, where is our treasure? And that's why there are such grave warnings given to those who become enamored with earthly wealth, even believers, because it's such a temptation. Paul, talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, or all kinds of evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. They have robbed themselves of God's real blessings of riches by pursuing after earthly riches. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus gave this analogy in verse 25. It says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because earthly riches become such a distraction to what God really wants our focus to be. James chapter 5, James gives the same admonition in verses 1 through 3. He says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered. The rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. And what James is saying basically is you built your entire life around the security of riches And you're going to end up in the last days, and it's not going to save you. It can't. Because your soul cannot be redeemed with silver and gold. And that's why in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Lay not for yourselves up treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, how many of you have gone to the bank or gone to the the stock exchange and deposited money into a heavenly mutual fund? Those don't exist, folks, okay? You're not going to find them listed on the the, the stock exchange listings. The bank doesn't have a kind of account where I want to deposit money into my heavenly account. They don't do that, okay? All the money that we deal with on this earth is for earthly things. Now, again, there's spiritual 
work that can be done with earthly money. And so God has given it to us for a tool. I'm not saying you shouldn't support your church. You shouldn't support ministries. You shouldn't support missionaries. Okay, all of those things are worthwhile. But the point that Christ makes is where you put your treasure, what you value the most is where your heart will be focused. And if we put so much value on earthly treasure to the point where we think earthly treasure is valuable enough that it can secure my salvation in God either by how I use it or by what it can buy me, we will lose everything. So Peter says here, our souls cannot be purchased with earthly treasure because you cannot buy the eternal with what is temporal. And to God, earthly riches are not worth, to him specifically, what the value of a human soul is worth. So if that doesn't work, if all the treasures of the earth are not enough, then what is valuable enough to purchase a human soul? Look at verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You want to find something of value in God's economy? There it is. The blood of Jesus Christ. The only thing valuable enough to pay the cost of redeeming us from sin is the life of another human being. But it can't just be any human being. It has to be one who is perfectly innocent, perfectly holy, and sinless. Otherwise, that life, that blood, does not meet God's requirement and God's condition for the payment of sin. And that's why in verse 18, Peter says, he doesn't just say the blood of Christ or the precious blood of Christ. He goes on and describes it as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, when he says that, he's actually referring to God's condition or God's description of the type of sacrifice that Israel had to make in making atonement for their sins. It started with the Passover lamb as the people were getting ready to exit Egypt on that fateful night when the death angel came over Egypt and killed all the firstborn sons. And remember, Peter tells us, God is not a discriminatory judge. Everyone is treated fairly. And so he told Israel on that night, the death angel will come. If you do not have the blood of the lamb on your doorposts and on the lintel, and you are inside that house, you will lose your firstborn. And so only those who had the blood of that lamb that they sacrificed on the doorposts and they were inside under that blood were saved. That's what Peter's alluding to. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, God describes what that lamb should be. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So it had to be a one-year-old lamb that was without spot, without blemish, no physical problems. In other words, the cream of the flock. And one-year-old or less. Now you go, wait a minute. Isn't that the best potential for a future flock? That's the whole point. That's the best that we have. And God requires the best that Israel had as a sacrifice. They didn't deal in silver and gold as much in Israel's day. They dealt in flocks and herds. And so this was the the stature of their wealth. How many flocks and herds? What was the state of your animals? And God says, I want you to take the best of what you have, that one-year-old or less than one-year-old lamb, that innocent lamb who hasn't done anything, and that will be your sacrifice. And it wasn't just a perfect lamb, because God goes on and says, I want you to take that perfect lamb, find that one best perfect lamb out of your entire flock, and then I want you to bring it in your house for four days. Live with it as a pet. Learn to love it. And then kill it. See, that was the pattern that God established from the very beginning. 
It's what we call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That an innocent victim would give its life for the guilty party. That lamb was innocent. The people were guilty. That lamb hadn't sinned, but the lamb became the sacrifice for the people's sin. And this was the pattern that God established right from the beginning. Remember all the way back with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an innocent animal to cover their nakedness, which represented their sin. They didn't recognize their nakedness until they had sinned. And God killed an innocent animal to provide coverings for them in their sin. The Passover lamb, as I mentioned, was killed for each Jewish household on the night the death angel descended upon Egypt. That perfect lamb. According to Old Testament law, Israel had to continue to kill the innocent and perfect lamb, the best of their flock, and bring that blood to the mercy seat and sprinkle it on the mercy seat every year as atonement for their sins. Now, Hebrews tells us that Israel continued to do this year after year after year because even though that little lamb that they sacrificed, in our perspective, was valuable, it was not perfect and it wasn't enough to cover their sins permanently. And that's why we need Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only innocent and perfect human ever to walk the face of this earth. Up until him, there had been none who were perfect. Some were described as upright and godly, Noah, Enoch. But they were not perfect and without sin. Only Jesus Christ fit that description. And as Jesus walked the face of the earth as an innocent and perfect human being, he became that perfect lamb because he lived that life without sin. And so for us as human beings, then, he was the only sacrifice that God could accept. Jesus, as a man, suffered all the temptation to sin, just as we do, as Hebrews tells us. But he did not sin. He had no sin. Nor could he sin because he was also God. Isaiah 53 talks about him as the lamb. It says, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. We sang part of Isaiah 53 this morning in hymn 117. Isaiah 53 is a perfect Old Testament prophecy of the perfect lamb that Jesus would be. When you think about Isaac walking up the side of Mount Moriah with his father, Abraham, and he's got the wood, he's got the fire, and he looks at his father and he says, where's the lamb? Remember Abraham's answer? My son, God will provide himself a lamb. And then John the Baptist pointed to that answer or that provision by God when he pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. See, that was the reason and the very purpose for which Jesus came to this earth in the first place. Look at verse 20 in 1 Peter chapter 1. We have a lamb, the precious blood of Christ in verse 19. Verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. God's plan from the very beginning was to offer his son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect lamb on the cross to pay for the sins of all people that would ever be committed. Now, God did not look down and say, oops, Adam and Eve sinned. Now I got to come up with plan B. Let's have a redeemer. God knew already Before he created the earth, before Adam and Eve ever were in existence, God knew they would be sinners. God knew before you ever came into being that you would be a sinner and that the only way we could have fellowship with God was for God to provide a redeemer. 
So in verse 20, Peter tells us that before any of that happened, God planned and God's only plan was to provide his son as a redeemer, that perfect lamb whose blood needed to be shed so that we might be saved. That's God's only plan. In First First Peter chapter one verse two, remember we talked about being elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God knew before anything was ever created who would be His people, and God knew in order to be His people we would need a redeemer, and so that was God's plan from the very beginning, before Jesus ever became a man. Redemption through Christ's blood was not a reactionary plan that God came up with after man sinned. It was from the beginning, from before the foundations of the world, Peter says. God knew before creation that man would need a redeemer, and so from the very beginning, his plan was to provide Jesus Christ as that redeemer, as that perfect lamb. And then Peter goes on in verse 20, he says, but he was manifest in these last times for you. God planned before a creation for Christ to be the Redeemer, but he sent Jesus as the Redeemer at the perfect time in human history according to God's plan. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul explains this. He says, but when the fullness of the time was come, that means in the perfect time in history, in the perfect time of God's plan, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He's been revealed to us. God's whole plan of redemption is revealed in Jesus Christ. Without him, there's no plan. There's no hope. Everything that he has talked about so far comes down to one thing, and that one thing is Jesus Christ coming as a man to earth to become the perfect sacrifice as the Lamb of God. And so Jesus came to earth as a man, revealed himself to be the Son of God, and died a physical and spiritual death in our place. Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says the same thing, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. In other words, he chose to do this willingly. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And Paul again says in Colossians 1, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So Peter tells us the only thing precious enough to God to redeem us, to bring our souls out of the bondage of sin, was the blood of Christ. But even though Christ's blood was sufficient in value to pay for that redemption, his physical blood alone was not enough to save us from sin. Now, I say that because there are people who say, well, Christ didn't really die. He was swooning. He was in a coma. They put him in the tomb in the cold air and, you know, kind of revived him. Okay, unfortunately, that doesn't fit with God's plan of redemption because the life has to be taken. And that's what this means with the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is what? Death. Someone has to die for sin. And so this blood of Christ is not just that he bled. The blood of Christ is referring to the fact that he was crucified and died on the cross. His life was taken. 
In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. What God was telling Israel was this. When you kill an animal and sacrifice it, you drain the blood from it because its life is in its blood. When you drain the blood from it, it dies. So every reference that we have to the blood of Christ is not just talking about the fact that he may have pricked his finger and blood spilled out or that the thorns were placed on his head and the blood dripped down, is talking about the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. Because that was, that's what God required to pay for our sin. And so Jesus was the innocent victim that could be the only payment for our sin in redemption. I'm going to close with this. Illustrator, uh, I'm sorry, commentator Alan Stibbs says this. It's, it's significant that Jesus and his death are here interpreted in terms fully understandable only by those who know the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is to be recognized as fulfilling the office of Messiah. That's that promised Redeemer. His death is to be regarded as substitutionary and so redemptive. And the death of the sinless for the benefit and release of the sin-bound. In other words, the innocent victim dies for those in bondage. It is this recognition of what redemption has cost which puts those who share in it under added obligation to order their lives in a correspondingly worthy manner. And that's exactly why Peter repeats God's command here in verse 15 and 16. Jesus had to give his life for us. That was the only payment that was valuable enough to God to pay for our souls. What kind of motivation do we have recognizing that Jesus gave up everything so we could gain everything than to follow him in holiness? He which has, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now we're way over time, and I realize that, so we're going to have to stop there. But that's what it costs God to purchase our salvation. That alone should be enough motivation for us to seek God's holiness in our lives, to desire it, because it cost Christ everything. Next time we get together, we'll look at what we have been redeemed from and what we've been redeemed to, but we're going to stop there. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, and we know that it signified that he gave his life for us. He had to die to pay the punishment for our sin so that we might have eternal life. And Lord, make us truly, eternally grateful for that sacrifice. And in that thanksgiving and that grateful heart, may we truly desire to live following you and becoming what you have called us to be. We just submit ourselves to you now. We thank you for the work that you're going to do. And we look forward to the day you call us home. But through your spirit, may we be faithful in being those holy people set apart for your kingdom and demonstrating that to those around us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 125, Jesus Paid It All. All